It's May 15, 2013, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we'll be your geeks in residence for the next hour. First, we'll look at the latest tech news and happenings in Hawaii and beyond. And joining us today is Mike Prasad from Kinetic Labs to tell us about the upcoming Wetware Wednesday. Finally, we'll explore how a school in Waipahu and a company on Bishop Street are building a culture of innovation with design thinking. Have your questions and observations ready to call in or tweet, but first, the headlines. Honolulu Mayor Kirk Caldwell on Monday filled one of the few remaining slots on his cabinet when he announced his nominee for the city's director of information technology. Mark Wong, founder of former IT firm Commercial Data Systems, was tapped to help modernize the city's outdated technology infrastructure and streamline Honolulu.gov website. Caldwell called it a major hire. Wong, a graduate of Iolani School with a computer science degree from Yale University, founded Commercial Data Systems in 1986, and it grew to have offices in 13 states. The company was sold in 2012. Wong said in a statement, It is an honor to join Mayor Caldwell and his team in creating systems that offer comprehensive access to city services, increased productivity, and greater security. Management of information is a key component of the mayor's plan for a more transparent and effective government. Mayor Caldwell has broken with tradition in taking several months to fill key positions in his administration. Though usually announced prior um, Though usually announced prior to taking office, Caldwell announced 11 cabinet members at the end of last year and several more in the last few months. Apart from the Director of Information Technology, only the Chief Medical Examiner has yet to be named, a position that hasn't been filled for more than three years. Now, it is pretty notable that uh, Mark Wong has been selected Mark's got, uh, I've known him from, you know, computer data systems and, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, commercial data systems, and, and they've been around for like 27 years, and they did a pretty good job of growing that sort of IT sector. Absolutely, and uh, two of the three last day jobs I've had, we worked with CDS as, as clients. So uh, definitely a lot of background in large-scale systems and deployment and figuring out how to engineer and architect everything, and certainly something that uh, the city needs for sure. I like that they even mentioned the Honolulu.gov website, which, although it is jam-packed with information, uh, it's it's it's, it's needed, in need of a little bit of uh, reorganization. Mm-hmm. I got a chance to talk a little bit with him, and uh, he was sharing some thoughts about what he has in mind. And uh, one of the things that was kind of encouraging was the idea of using more op- open source platforms for sure, sure. for various applications. And one of which is, I think, uh, looking at doing... Um, uh, some enterprise-wide sort of uh, content management system and, and maybe looking at some open-source solutions for doing that. Yeah, yeah, we'll get uh, the city on WordPress. Oh, I don't know, <laughs> either that or Joomla or Drupal or something sure. like that. As scientific data related to climate change grows in importance, eyes around the world have increasingly focused on the atmospheric readings collected by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration from atop Mauna Loa on the Big Island. The facility has long been tracking the prevalence of carbon dioxide in the air since 1958, in fact, the longest such record available to researchers. Last week, the concentration of atmospheric CO2 neared the symbolic milestone of 400 parts per million. Initially, the data showed CO2 levels had surpassed 400 parts per million on May 9th, but regular data set adjustments put the official figure at 399.89. Even so, the numbers meant CO2 levels had climbed nearly 22 points from just a decade ago. The Atmospheric Monitoring Program was established by renowned 
geochemist Charles Keeling and his son Ralph is today the director of the CO2 program at Scripps Research Institute in California. He told the UK's Guardian news agency yesterday that it feels like we're moving into another era. Scientists say that the last time CO2 was at 400 parts per million, it was 3 to 5 million years ago. Back then, global average temperatures were 5 to 7 degrees Fahrenheit warmer, and sea levels were up to 130 feet higher. A number of climate scientists have set a target of 350 parts per million, urging governments to advance policies that reduce greenhouse gas emissions that would avoid severe climate changes and avoid environmental feedback loops that might accelerate global warming. Now, it's interesting, this story uh, kind of points out to a couple of things when they talk about entering into or moving into another era and the idea of feedback loops that might affect our overall sort of climate. And really talking about maybe some massive global changes that this 400 parts per million is an indicator of. Right, and in fact, they keep emphasizing it's not so much that this is happening, but it's the rate that it's happening. It may have taken, you know, a thousand years for a 10 parts per million increase uh, in the past, and now we're going to be probably seeing a 500 parts per million increase in the next 100 years. So mm-hmm. that's a that there's phrases like, of course, the Keeling curve, the hockey stick. Um, it's a sharp up turn. And, uh, you know, the last time we saw it was back in the Pelocene. So mm-hmm. they're saying, even even Keeling is saying, you know, to stop CO2 and bring it, start bringing it down, you're looking at cutting fossil fuel burning by 60%, which is totally unrealistic. Mm-hmm. But they are saying that something needs to happen for sure. Right, right, right. So well, we'll be definitely monitoring this and seeing if those uh, parts per million increase over the next uh, several Well, years. the interesting thing is it was because of time zones that it got pushed back down to 399.89, and they said that if— um, Oh, just a technical error, sort of? Like, well, yeah. Not so technical it, error, but— uh, When they adjusted mm-hmm, it that way, mm-hmm, and in fact, even the scripts, they have their own monitoring station in San Diego. They said, oh, if we were on that time zone, we would have shown 400, too. So oh, I see. So we're probably not that far mm-hmm. off. Well, next up, amateur astronomers and space lovers worldwide are being invited to help researchers find massive galaxies and galaxy clusters— that are so large they bend light around them. This gravitational lensing effect has been an important tool for peering even deeper into the edges of the universe. The Space Warps project launched last week is crowdsourcing the review of hundreds of thousands of deep sky images. The first set of images comes from the Canada-France-Hawaii telescope located at the 4,200-foot level on Mauna Kea. University of Oxford astrophysicist Phil Marshall explains, not only do space warps act like lenses, which magnify the distant galaxies behind them, but also the light that they distort can be used to weigh them. That helps us to figure out how much dark matter they contain and how it's distributed. Project co-leader Anupreet Moore, based at the University of Tokyo, said in a statement, we've scanned the images with computer algorithms, but there are likely to be many more space warps that the algorithms have missed. And Moore adds that the Space Warps team has even artificially added simulated space warps into some images, both to help train volunteers to spot them and to reassure them that they're on the right track. And the information exchange goes both ways, as the human brain is better at identifying visual anomalies like space warps. Gravitational lenses spotted by volunteers will also be used to help train computers to better identify them. And, of course, we've been talking about uh, these gravitational lenses and, and how they help astronomers sort of uh, look deep into space and, and identify various sort of phenomenon. And I think it's kind of interesting where now they're putting it out to the public and having them help 
identify some of these sort of images where there's some some of this warping around uh, these galaxies. Well, one of the things that we've been covering quite a bit is the crowdsourcing of astronomy, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. these are such massive data sets that even if one person looks at 40 images, if you've got 100 or 1,000 or thousands of people doing it, you can cover a lot more ground than one researcher who, in fact, probably should be spending their time doing more specific uh, image gathering or something on that end rather than the analysis. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about SETI at home. We had uh, the Galaxy Zoo and so uh, this is just another example of that. I like that these images come from a Hawaii telescope, though. I'm really interested in the fact that they put fake ones in to either make you feel encouraged that you find one. I'm not sure if I'd be happy that I'm like, oh, there's a space Well, mark. you know how it is when you're out there looking for something and then uh, you are... Uh, I'll give you an example. Like if you're out there looking for clams or something or looking for squid, if you see the first one, then your brain sort of locks into what true, it is that you're true. looking at. And even if you're being you sort of led on, led on <laughs> in this example, if your eyes are trained to see the lensing, then I think you can find the next one and the next one you know, more easily. And I do like the idea that that's one thing that maybe humans still excel you know, more than computers. The one few thing. <laughs> one of the few remaining yeah. things. A researcher at the University of Hawaii has received an award from the U.S. Department of Energy, along with $750,000 in funding over five years, to advance her search for a new type of elementary particle. Jelena Marichik, an associate professor of physics, received the Early Career Research Program Award from the DOE. As the first such awardee for a UH Manoa faculty member, she will continue to explore the world of neutrinos. Well, neutrinos are subatomic particles that carry no electric charge nor have any measurable mass. About 50, 65 billion neutrinos from the sun pass through the human body each second without leaving a trace. Uh, Marichek is chasing sterile neutrinos, a hypothetical kind of neutrino that doesn't interact with any other elements or forces except gravity. Proving the existence of sterile neutrinos is a major focus of modern particle physics. To find them, Marichek will design a tungsten shield that will be installed at the Kamland Underground Neutrino Observatory in Japan. Specialized shielding is needed to be able to separate the faint neutrino signals from an overwhelming amount of natural radioactivity. The installation is part of the Sealand project named after the chemical element cesium, which will serve as the radioactive source in the CAMLAND detector. In addition to Marichik's research group at UH, other collaborators in Sealand are located on the mainland in Japan and in France. Well, so, you know, I, I I don't profess to be a neutrino expert, uh, but we did uh, have, we did do a we show. We do, do, do a show on neutrinos. Mm-hmm. Now there are evidently three neutrinos or three neutrino groups, and they're the electron, the muon, and the tau. And this one is the supposed fourth one. Um, so they're they're finding ways to prove this. The Cam Lan um, collector is some some thousand meters underground. Uh, in this uh, place in Japan called uh, Kamioka, and it's in a mine, it's old mine. So I guess, you know, underground so far is because they want to filter out all the other, let's say, solar neutrinos that are coming through. And then once, you know, whatever gets to this thousand meter uh, uh, below underground is going to be probably something from, you know, maybe the uh, the reactors over there. Right, well, they're they're specifically looking at the, the emissions from the reactors. Uh, the Antarctic product, the Anita uh, project, mm-hmm. was looking for things from the sun. So... Yeah, but this stuff about particles that are so small that we can't even confirm that they're there, always interesting stuff. Finally, a couple of quick stories we wanted to share with you. A group of six petitioners filed a notice of appeal with the with a Big Island court on Monday to contest the decision by the State Board of Land and Natural Resources to approve a 
permit to build the 30-meter telescope atop Mauna Kea. The Hawaii Tribune Herald reports that the notice came on the last day of a 30-day deadline and that the petition claims that the board's permit approval violates the rules for conservation districts. On the tech calendar, on Monday, on the Big Island, the Tech Monday Pauhana returns to the Natural Energy Lab north of Kona. The featured speaker will be Paul Pantheu, who will talk about the large solar power array and battery system that's installed at Pu'uwa'awa Ranch. The event starts at 5 p.m. on May 20th at the Nelha Gateway Center. For more information and directions, you can visit energyfuturehawaii.org. And of course, keeping up with the accelerators in town, now joining us here in the studio is Mike Prasad from Kinetic Labs to tell us about the next Wetware Wednesday. Welcome to the show, Mike. Glad to be here. Well, you know, so um, I know Wetware Wednesdays happen every month, and uh, we thought we'd have you on because you're going to be talking about Kinetic. And really, I want to find out a little bit more about what is happening with Kinetic, and what are you going to share with the folks that go to uh, this Wetware Wednesday? So one of our agendas is really to support the local engineering and development community. So Wetware Wednesday is the perfect venue. Mm-hmm. We want to engage them and get them involved in what we're doing. And what Wetware Wednesday gives us a chance to do is present kind of what Kinetic Labs is doing, how we're different, and why there might be opportunity for them to participate in some of the companies we're going to be funding, and also maybe suggest some of their own companies that we could fund. Mm -hmm. Now, we've been tracking the Accelerator movement and the state's uh, involvement and support of it for several years now, and uh, we've talked to some of the others, including startups. But uh, what is Kinetic Labs' special sauce or secret focus that, uh, that, that differentiates you from the others? So like any type of you know business or vertical, you have people playing in the same field. Um, Blue Startups is a very, very well-designed program, uh, and they're focusing on the business development and the business acceleration. Where we're different is that we're actually a little bit of a hybrid. We're part accelerator, part incubator, if you may. The differentiation being accelerators are typically uh, shorter. They're focused on the business plan and the pitching. Uh, they're less focused on products, typically. Um, they're less hands-on. The more classroom style and incubators are more hands-on, focused on the product. They provide a little bit more hands-on on the development side as well. And what we're, try- what we're trying to do is really look at the ecosystem in Hawaii and say, what is missing and what can we fill and what are the common points of failure? And to that effect, we create a six-month program, which is a double nutritional accelerator. Um, and it's three phases, and we actually go from everything from the business model and the pitching, which is still critical and what you traditionally see in an accelerator, but also going into the um, product development and the launch and the go-to-market. Mm-hmm. So we really want to look at that, you know, what would otherwise be the first year of a, of a startup and how can we accelerate and solve points, uh, bridge points of failure and provide more resources to fundamentally solve the problems that entrepreneurs face and these early startups face. Mm-hmm. Are you uh, taking applications already? We've been taking applications for a while now. We actually were planning on closing applications, but due to more demand and more interest, we actually are extending that till June 15th. So mm-hmm. anyone can sign up on our website at kineticlabs.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, are you looking for any particular type of uh, profile company? We have a very specific profile. I mean, like, there's lots of programs out there, and it's important for the applicants to look for the program that matches what they need mm-hmm. best. So there's a lot of applicants we've gotten that will probably do better with Blue Startups, for example. Likewise, Blue Startups has forwarded us applications that would do better with our program. We're looking for technology-driven startups, uh, web-focused or, or um, uh, platform-focused. So the idea is that we want something, a uh, startup serving the consumer audience because our, our expertise in our network focuses on the consumer end um, or facilitating transactions between businesses to consumers. So we're looking at consumer-facing or consumer-adjacent, meaning platforms and tools. 
uh, we have a heavy focus on social. We have a heavy focus on e-commerce. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the projects that I know um, you've been affiliated with was like the Hawaii Cocktail Bitters um, sort of Kickstarter and things like that. And I, I, I do know that one of the angles in the local startup community does involve manufacturing and such. Is that is that separate from or is that also within the wheelhouse of Kinetic Labs? We are not looking at. Well, it could be. So if you're manufacturing a product that has a unique or um, uh, digital tie-in, we're looking for products that use digital to accelerate their business model. We're not looking for products that are more traditional that don't really involve digital in a heavy way. Now, with Hawaii Bitters, we did we crowdsourced the entire project, and a lot of the uh, marketing and a lot of the uh, consumer acquisition was done digitally, probably entirely digitally. And so that's kind of why we had a role in that, but that's not necessarily what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. So uh, at the Wetware Wednesday, what do you want to accomplish? You do you want to just kind of give people a general idea of what Kinetic Lab is all about? Yeah, we want to talk about the phases we have. We're, we're a three-phase program. Phase one is um, is a kind of validation, making sure that it's worth building and you can um, build it in the time and the money allotted. Uh, phase two is going to be actual incubation, so going from that plan to building and launching a product, and then phase three is acceleration, meaning market acceleration, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where we're actually helping them gain customers, gain revenue. Um, I wanted to kind of show our model, why we think it's it's going to help entrepreneurs in the early stages, and also why uh, it's different and, and who it fits best. We really want to attract the right type of talent to match the program, because ultimately, our success is vested in the startups that we invest in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also our, our monetary investment is different. So we're taking a little bit more equity, but we're giving more money. We're giving up to $60,000 instead of $20,000. Mm-hmm. And, and ideally, how many how many cohort or how many companies in your co- first cohort? We have the capability of funding uh, up to 20 uh, or more, actually, depending on the investment size. I'm hoping we get five good ones. I mean, I'll be happy with five solid startups for mm-hmm. each class, mm-hmm. um, and we'll have two classes a year. Mm-hmm. And in terms of timeline, you've extended the application deadline, but when does this first uh, class kick off? So our current timeline is uh, applications end June 15th. Uh, we'll finalize our interviews, and we'll be beginning announcing our first cohorts in early July, late June. Um, and we want to start the program in, in uh, mid to late July. Okay, great. And tell us where uh, this Wetware Wednesday is going to take place. Wetware Wednesday is at uh, Pearl Ultra Lounge in, uh, in Alamona. And that'll be uh, next Wednesday. Next yeah. Wednesday next at Wednesday. Six, after the show, six o'clock. Yes, after people listen to our show. That's right. Then should, they go, go down. Down. and then we'll, we'll probably remind them during our show. We'll try and do that cool. as well. Sounds good. Thanks, Mike, for joining us. Thanks for having me. And that's what's been happening this week. We'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by John Komeji and Keith. Hayashi to talk about implementing innovation. What is the process of innovation? How does design thinking help foster that? We'd, of course, love your thoughts or questions as part of the conversation, so please give us a call at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And, of course, you can also tweet us your questions at ByteMarks or at Hawaii. This is ByteMarks Cafe. How do you create a successful life? For kids in foster care, that's a loaded question. What it's loaded with are their experiences, and most aren't so good. We'll look at foster care with the president of High Hopes, the administrator of Catholic Charities' Naohana Paloma program, and a therapeutic foster mom. I'm Beth Ann Kozlovich. Join us Thursday at 5 on Town Square. He looked around the room as if he had just landed from Mars and it was the first time he ever saw anything. Something was about to happen. On the next Radio Lab, a woman teaches a 27-year-old man his very first words. He slaps his hands on the table. Oh, everything has a name. That's on the next Radio Lab. 
Saturday morning at 10. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is John Komeji and Keith Hayashi. John is the Senior Vice President uh, and General Counsel, responsible for legal, government affairs, support services, and external affairs over at Hawaiian Telecom. Keith, meanwhile, is the principal at Waipahu High School and recently won the Island Insurance Foundation's ninth annual Masayuki Tokioka Excellence in School Leadership Award. Why is innovation sought after by so many organizations? We'd love to hear your questions and comments. And, of course, that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu. Or from the neighbor islands or even from the continent, you can reach us at one 941 3689 Keith and John, we want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Thank you, Bert. All right, thanks for having us. Now, we'll start off with kind of a general question uh, around the idea of, of innovation. And, you know, there's a lot of thought going on nowadays. Of course, you know, innovation has been batted around for many, many years, and it's always something that the people like to try to incorporate into their respective organizations. I want to start with you, John. Uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, your thoughts on on trying to instill this concept of innovation and some of the um, ideas on how you want to accomplish that. Maybe maybe basically start at a basic level. What is innovation in your mind? Well, innovation is coming up with new ways of doing things, new products. Um, basically, you know, we're competing against the world. Everybody mm-hmm. in Hawaii is competing against the world. And everybody else in the rest of the world is uh, innovating and trying to do new stuff. Um, so the idea for us is to um, bring new processes, new ways of thinking, uh, address what our customers want and need, and come up with these new products, come up with these new processes so that we can compete with everyone else. If you don't innovate, um, you're going to die, basically. Is, is, is innovation something that is a, uh, a new concept? I mean, any, mm-hmm. all the companies that are here now have always, always been competing at some level, right. whether it's locally or now nationally. Or uh, innovation is not a new process, but I think the speed of innovation is something that is unprecedented. Or the need for the speed. The need for the speed and the 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 I guess the 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 context in which you're competing mm-hmm. is different, mm-hmm. right? Before you just compete, maybe even locally or even nationally, but now you're competing against people from all over the world uh, with technology. That's very possible. You can be competing with a guy working out of his garage, um, where you know a long time ago that was like one of these folk stories, right? right? Mm-hmm. But now they're they're, they're actually millions of people probably you're competing with out of their garage. So as a company, we have to innovate. We have to move forward because without that, uh, like I said, we wouldn't survive. Mm-hmm. And, and John, I mean, I wonder if you could speak to this in a little bit of, in terms of Hawaiian Telecom in particular. I mean, it has had a lot of transition, a lot of transformation, right. a lot of uh, uh, uh uh, issues that it had to work its way through from changes in ownership to f- the focus of the company to developing new products and not relying on good old, you know, plain old telephone right. system sales. Yeah, so we're, we're out there. We, we've, we've rolled out a new TV product. We've been very successful rolling out a new TV product. People don't realize now that we're a freestanding company, we have to innovate and do everything ourselves. We don't have a mothership uh, as we used to have. Uh, so we have to do everything ourselves. But that innovation goes beyond the technical innovation. As a freestanding company, we have to create our own HR policies. We have to do our own, um, what we do with our fleet, with our buildings. Uh, We have to create our own financial models. um, So that one of my dreams about Hawaiian Telecom is to allow 
if you think about it, we are the largest technology company in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you think about it also, we also provide an opportunity for people in these different areas, for example, in finance, to create and develop financial models that we here are in Hawaii developing. So, so our ability to innovate cuts across the company. It's just not, people tend to pigeonhole us in terms of creating technological innovation, but we can create innovation in all these various aspects of business because we have to, because we're here uh, standing on our loan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so it's a wider kind of innovation than um, maybe, uh, I, I told you guys before, I'm not a technical guy, than just the technical aspects of the technical products. Mm-hmm. But but it, uh, my dream is that Hawaiian Telecom will, will survive and be innovative to allow the people and children of Hawaii a place where they can utilize their talents at the highest level, be it in finance, be it in marketing, be it in developing products. So that's why Hawaiian Telecom, to me, is an important company to Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Now, now, Keith, uh, we've had you on before. You're principal over at Waipahu uh, High School coming more from the uh, educational arena. And uh, we we all often hear of stories on the news, the challenges that are facing education, the, uh, you know, maybe the tradition of education. I'm, I'm curious to hear your sort of definition of innovation and the need for innovation to get incorporated into this, this sort of educational framework. Well, you know, exactly what uh, John had shared. You know, at Waipawa High School, we're looking at uh, – Hawaii Telecom and industry as our clients, Mm -hmm. post-secondary schools as our clients. And so what do we need to do to prepare our graduates so that when they enter the workforce or they go on to to post-secondary experiences, uh, they can succeed? And so um, that that innovative environment is very important also at the high school level. Mm -hmm. And not only at the high school, but within the K-12, kindergarten through 12th grade uh, continuum. And so we're, we're continually trying to provide different opportunities and experiences for our students uh, to be engaged in, in innovative experiences where um, they're able to uh, utilize different processes, for example, like design thinking, and uh, really get engaged in the learning. Uh, one example might be um, at, at our school, we were having uh, some issues with students not eating school lunch. And we wanted them to be more uh, mindful of the nutritional value of the school lunch and um, and and, and uh, purchase mm-hmm. school lunches more. So u- using the DT process, we uh, went out and talked to all of the students. Our, our students went out from human physiology, and uh, they got input and feedback from the rest of our students. And so what it came out to was we designed a... Uh, alternative lines outside of our, our cafeteria, and the students went about doing that, and we redesigned how our lunches were plated and served. So now what we have is we have a whole bunch more students eating lunch, we're selling out, but that whole hmm. process came out of an innovative process that here's a design here's a design challenge for us, a problem, and so how do we go about doing it? And now rather than the adults figuring it out, we're, we're letting the students take that mm-hmm. and roll with it. So they need to be creative, have their creative juices flow, and um, our students support them. So through that process, we're hoping that, um, and we're seeing results from it, that our students will be further engaged, and they'll have these experiences so that when they leave us, they're prepared to enter 
you know, companies like Hawaii Telecom mm-hmm. and be able to continue with those experiences. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're talking to John Komeji, Senior Vice President and General Counsel at Hawaiian Telecom, and Keith Hayashi, Principal at Waipahu High School, about uh, fostering innovation in organizations and perhaps the design thinking process as a way to make that happen. If you've got a question about either approach or if you've got your own ideas about how you can foster innovation in a company, you can give us a call here at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We're also listening on Twitter, at Hawaii and at Bite Marks. Now, Keith, uh, you know, just like John with Hawaiian Telecom and some of its uh, the, the major transitions it's gone through, I'm kind of curious how you are able to foster and focus on thinking outside of the box and doing things differently when also in education there's more and more emphasis on standardized testing and putting things in boxes and check boxes. You know, my kids know their HSA scores much better than they know almost anything else that they come home from school with. So how do you how do you merge those two things? I think there are uh, there are different pieces with uh, uh how students are are progressing in school and the test scores are one component uh, as, a, as we transi- transition as a system to the Common Core and the next generation assessments. Uh, we're looking at how we can engage our students in different kinds of learning, where they are thinking outside of the box, that they're using their creativity, that we can provide experiences for them that they become further engaged in school. You know, we're, we're looking at how do we identify what the student's passion is. Once we can figure that out mm-hmm. and, and through that engagement with them, then we provide them with different opportunities to network with each other so that they can go ahead and solve different kinds of problems within those areas. At Waipawa High School, we have, we're focused on the six pathways. And within those pathways, uh, we have different academies. And so what that provides is opportunities for students uh, to become engaged in those areas. Uh, for example, uh, we have an arts and communication pathway. And so what we're looking down the road is... Um, how do we utilize um, the talents of our students who are able to um, uh, build on their music abilities, their singing, um, and then start to create music, uh, start to create um, different opportunities going out and and, and talking to people who may want to engage them. Mm -hmm. And uh, for for an example, uh, if if our students... um, are going to work with uh, um, a company who is going to have an event. And so we want our students to go out and say, okay, you know, what kind of music do you want? What kind of um, uh, environment do you want to create at your event? And so our students, our chorus students, as well as our students in band, and our music tech students who are creatively uh, creating music on digital media uh, would go and, and engage the end user or, or the people who are having that event. And Find out from them what kind of um, feelings do they want. So our students would then go and um, create the music. They'll write original music, go back to the end user and say, hey, you know, this is uh, something what we have. This is what you want. And if it is, then, you know, do you want it to be electronic or do you want it to be live? And then our students are able to perform. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's those kinds of experiences that there, there's not really an, an outcome that the teacher is going to be uh, defining, but rather the students would define the outcome or the learning based on their audience. Now, John, I'm going to put you on the spot and and have you uh, sort of explain to our listeners what exactly is this design thinking process? Well, design thinking to me is is just a... You always hear people say, well, you got to think out of the box. But nobody tells you or 
gives you a process to try and think out of the box. They just well, I think out of the box and you sit there, okay, how, how do I do this? So what design thinking does is it's very, uh, it's a process which allows you to actually focus on what the real problem is. The first step of design thinking is called empathy. What you're trying to do is you're trying to really define what that problem is. What usually happens in, in a lot of situations is that uh, the American way is to quickly jump to an understanding of what your customer's problem is uh, without really uh, delving into finding out what the real, real problem that they would want. So what, what usually happens is that you assume you know what the problem is, you design or you create a process that you think solves the problem, you spend all this time, and by the time you come up and say, well, here's the answer to your problem, they go, well, you know, thanks, but that's not the problem. Mm-hmm. So what design thinking does is spends a whole lot of time up front asking a lot of whys. I, I, I liken it to, I've heard several, you know, the Toyota um, Kaizen method. I've heard about this guy that just came, he's creating all these 7-Elevens in Japan. He calls it Y-storming. But the, it's the same idea is that you ask why of your uh, customer or the end user five times or four times, whatever, to get to the real basics. And then they have a process where you you uh, brainstorm and come up with ideas. And the other interesting thing that's a little bit different in design thing is once you brainstorm and you come up with an idea, you create a cheap, fast prototype. And the example I use as a prototype uh, that they use is that, you know, with a surgeon, they create a prototype for a surgery tool. And what they use, they use a eraser and a uh, one of those uh, uh, pens that you draw on the board with, mm-hmm. and they just tape it together. But the idea of creating a, a prototype is to give something to the customer or the end user and say, look, this is what we're thinking about. What do you think about that? And the idea is to use a prototype to get feedback back from people um, rather than the, the, the natural, and this is really hard where we go through the process. People usually defend the prototype. And if you don't, if you do, if you put a lot of effort into doing the prototype, the more likely you are to use a, to defend the prototype rather than using the prototype to uh, gain further empathy from your customer. So the idea is to gain empathy and then refine the prototype, and just it's a it's a circular type process, right? And you refine it, refine it, refine it. So that in on kind of a thirty seconds or one minute is what I understand design thinking to be. So mm-hmm. hopefully, Ian, you're listening, and I, I said it correctly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he is... is uh, and Ian Kitajima yeah, over yeah, at Ocean. John, could <laughs> he's you, a, he's, he's, yeah, he's a black belt. Uh, he's the he's he's a a guru. design thinking guru. Yeah, so uh, I'm sure he's testing me right now. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, now, well, Keith, uh, Keith um, so you talk about empathy with the customers. You talk about not being attached to your prototypes. You can see all of these things probably in any organization where you start with an idea, and if you're so attached to it, you won't be able to grow or advance because you're you're that attached to it. Um, but uh, another thing that often comes up, and maybe you can speak to this on the education side, is that there are experts, there are uh, thought leaders, or there are, well, teachers in a classroom. And on one hand, you want to have a conversation, you want to open things up. But on the other hand, you do need uh, uh, an expert, a subject matter expert, or a teacher that will at times kind of state what the problem is or state what uh, is a good solution. So, you know... Uh, do you see any conflict or any uh, uh, you know friction sometimes in in a classroom environment where uh, democracy or over democratizing the process actually hurts? Oh, uh, well, you know, I think uh, as, as we have our teachers who are the content area experts um, get together 
and start to articulate and talk across disciplines. Um, they're able to then uh, bring social studies, bring the sciences, bring career technical education courses together and uh, provide those opportunities for students to go ahead and, and use the design thinking process to solve problems. Uh, we've had students who have gone and worked with our elementary schools and other feeder schools. One example is um, Waikele Elementary uh, was looking for um, their school community council, is looking for how can they further recognize the community and business partners that are in their school. Uh, and so our students went down and they went through the process that, that John uh, described and uh, came up with several prototypes, quick prototypes, of uh, what some things might look like. And uh, so they're still in discussion in that process. But I think when we can get uh, different designers together um, from the different content areas, social studies and science and math and English working together, uh, then it's not the teachers who are those that are driving the instruction and the learning. But when the students can really drive it and own it, then uh, they're engaged. There's that level of ownership that the projects that they're working on are meaningful not only to them, but also to the end user that they're, that they're helping. You know? And so uh, we've seen, uh, as, you, as we continue to use, utilize the design thinking process, we've seen uh, how when students become engaged, that affects the climate of the entire school. You know, and we have students talking to other students, uh, really focusing on uh, what's going on in school. Mm -hmm. And I, we're fortunate at Waipahu to have a lot of great teachers who uh, work really hard in, in supporting our, our students. So, right. And so, I mean, Ryan, in our company, we're actually doing, trying to stress the opposite. We're trying to, we believe firmly that the answers to a lot of the problems and some of the challenges we have reside in our employees. And, and, and that the, we shouldn't be expecting, <clears throat> like in the common uh, American company, a hierarchical that the, the, the problems are going to be solved from the top down. So what we've done is that we've always had a uh, uh, kind of a customer-facing um, guide in terms of, you know, what, what would make a good experience for the customer. So we actually have embarked on this design thinking where we've, we've put together a team of um, people actually that service customers as well as their managers to come and go and talk to customers, say, what, what, what would make a good customer experience for you? What, what do you think other companies do that make a good customer experience? And they've come up with uh, what they believe is a guide to create a best the best customer experience. But the difference that to me is huge is that we got a commitment. We're committed to this process. So we got a commitment from upper management that whatever this small team of people come up with, we're going to roll it across the company. Okay, and what that does is that means that you as, as part of the team, you are engaged. What you say and what you do is very, very uh, important in terms of your ability to feel like you're a contributing member of the company. Your, your voice counts. And your ideas count. I can see how that would be uh, attractive for anybody who's not in management in just about any company. Right. Well, you know, and, and uh, John, what I, I, I want to also talk to you a little bit about the understanding how you frame the, the, the challenge in terms of uh, coming up with uh, the actual 
let's say, empathy question that they would go out there and talk to customers about. So when I hold that thought, we'll be right back after the short break to continue our conversation with John Komeji and Keith Hayashi about design thinking and building a culture of innovation. How do you find the pockets of innovation within an organization? We'd, of course, love to hear from you on this topic as well. Call 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. This is Bite Marks Cafe. This time I'm walking to New the city of New Orleans had a profound impact on John Kennedy Toole when he wrote his classic novel, A Confederacy of Dunces. Each neighborhood had its own character, its own sound, its own dialect, and he could just wander through his city and encounter all of these colorful characters. I'm Sarah McConnell. Join me for With Good Reason, Thursday nights at 6.30 on Hawaii Public Radio. In his 7th annual HBR concert, singer-guitarist Chris Vandercook and his band take a stroll through the many shadings of the blues in a concert he calls Blues, the Common Ground, on Saturday, May 25th at 7.30 in HBR's Atherton Studio. Vandercook blends his guitar style, which descends from past heroes like Freddie King, with his distinctive soul jazz sound of the Hammond organ and tenor sax, anchored by a contemporary bass and drums rhythm section. Reservations at 955-8821 during business hours. Welcome back. This is Bite Marsh Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I am Ryan Ozawa, and we're talking to John Komeji and Keith Hayashi about creating a culture of innovation. How is innovation sustained in a traditional school or work environment? Of course, you can call us at 941-3689 on Oahu or 1-877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And, of course, right before the break, we're talking about uh, you know the process of design thinking, the the importance of this aspect of of um, empathy, and really empathy is all about going out and talking to whether it's students or talking to customers or talking to people that are really encountering your product or service. And and John, I wanted to have you articulate a little bit more about when you had your sort of customer facing groups go out and talk to people. Were they given a a sort of a um, a framework or a uh, 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 sort of the question to ask them, what was it that they were sort of trying to understand uh, when they went out and, and did this sort of empathy phase? They were given the very general question about what what do you think we could do to make to enhance the customer experience? Mm-hmm. Their job then is to kind of come up with the type of questions that would help. They went through design thinking training. Uh, but then they would be asked to develop the questions that they would ask the customers the whys and a lot of times it's not uh, rocket science. Rocket science. Mm-hmm. It's just keep in normal conversation. We don't ask why too many times because it feels very uncomfortable. But to get to the root cause or the root of whatever, they develop their own questions, and a lot of it has to do with asking, "Oh, why is that important? Oh, why do you like that? Why?" And you keep on asking that. So part of the exercise or the process is for them to kind of understand and develop the questions and. As they as they go through these interviews, they they further refine the question for the next per, for the next uh, interview. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so we just give them a very broad topic, and that they have designed their own question. Have you have you gotten to the point where they've taken that and and helped to define what it is that the uh, let's say challenges, and then come up with some sort of a prototype? I mean, what they've, they've actually come up with a prototype, and we're actually in the testing phase right now. So. And, we haven't. We Not haven't, to give out any secrets, but what what is the 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 nature of the prototype? The prototype are uh, 
kind of, uh, I guess, items that we believe that if you do this, um, the customer and, and the customer would really appreciate it and would enhance the customer. So it's a list of things, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? But it's been generated by this team, generated based upon discussions with the client. So we actually rolled it out to a bunch of our other employees, and now we're asking them to go out and get feedback from mm-hmm. the customers about, okay, or, you know, what do you think about this? And then further refine it. So we're right in the testing process right now. Now, Keith, you know, we're talking about uh, uh, customers here and product development and things like that. Uh, it's a slightly different uh, framework, I imagine, in a school. Um, I like what you said earlier about the, you know, working on making school lunches more attractive. And certainly my uh, daughter would hope to be a beneficiary of that kind of uh, creative thinking as well. But uh, so who is the customer when you take this uh, approach to fostering innovation? Well, you know, looking at the school level, um, you know, Waipawa High School, uh, students, definitely, are, we can look at it one way as being the customer. And similar to what John has done at Hawaii Telecom at Waipawa High School, we've um, looked at how we, we reached out to our students in the area of mathematics and to, to get that empathy from them, the empathy phase. And so actually what our, what our teachers did was to get their attention first, uh, teachers went and learned from three students uh, a dance. And so we had a flash mob actually on our campus uh, in three sections of our campus, the teachers all came out and all started dancing. And so the students looked at us like, you know, something's going on, right? What, what's wrong here? And But it was a way to get our students out. And um, our teachers then and our, our staff went and talked to the kids and asked them, so what about mathematics? How do you feel about math? Uh, what's a positive experience that you had? What's a negative experience that you had? What do you think... Um, we should do at Waipau High School to make mathematics more engaging for you, to make it more interesting. And so we got a whole bunch of feedback from, this, from the students, and then uh, we went through the uh, design thinking process. We ideated. We came up with different prototypes and different ideas uh, from the faculty on how we can go ahead and engage our students uh, and make math more interesting for them. So we, we did uh, go and test some things, and uh, we're showing pretty good results, actually, you know, and... Um, I, I think that also has added to uh, that level of engagement for our, for our kids, for so, our students. So I'm on curious, what what uh, would be a top of mind example of a way to engage students with so, mathematics? So our students said that they wanted more hands-on. Mm-hmm. They didn't. They they enjoyed uh, the opportunity to talk with each other. They wanted to have the opportunity to have hands-on experience to in, in uh, uh, to talk to do math rather than just to sit back and listen to someone sharing about math. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So a more of a balanced approach. Um, they, they wanted to be able to um, see how math applied to different areas and make, help to make that connection for them, rather than seeing mathematics just as a set of problems. Um, you know, what, what can we do to um, apply mathematics in different areas? And so our, our teachers have been very good about that, and so we are implementing a curriculum that brings on, especially in Algebra one more of a hands-on approach where students are in a lab with mathematics and learning as they're doing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, uh, John, I wanted to ask you, you know, certainly we can see the need or why it would be critical for a large company like Hawaiian Telecom to, to want to have more innovative thinkers within it. Um, but, uh, well, a couple of things I'm curious about. One is how do you sell the idea of either design thinking or any of these other ways to, to foster thinking outside of the box in an organization? How do you convince a uh, a CEO that this is something you should commit some time to. You know, don't just buy us a book on management or a book on creative thinking, but let's 
invest some time and set aside uh, some some uh, some space and everything to to undergo this process. And uh, so I would ask you that. But secondly, what environment does it work in? I mean, does it always work when you're in your cubicles with a conference room at the end of the hall and a lunchroom? Um, does it do you does it help to go offsite or segregate yourself? Uh, so first of all, how how would you encourage somebody who wanted to foster this in their company to sell its management? You need any change. If you read any book on change management, you need somebody that's an evangelist, right? You need somebody that's going to be the one to carry the torch. So that's my job. There's a carry the torch, but my job is to then convince the senior management. Uh, luckily for us, our CEO heard about design thinking and had read about it, and actually asked to participate um, in a all day design thinking training so he could understand what it was about and he, once he participated he gave us the green light said hey this is a really good process so if if the if the leader of the company says this is what we want to do like Keith says this is what we want to do and I'm really bought into it that helps but at the same time what we got to do is we have to have smaller problems and then show success and the good thing about design thinking to me is that when you go through the process there's a lot of high energy uh, there's a lot of energy that comes when you are working as a group, and it's interdisciplinary group. When you're working as a group, there's a high energy. They're having fun, uh, something a little bit different from what they do. So people, uh, we have a session every Thursday. People look forward to coming to our session because it's different. And what that does is that they start then going out Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, and start using what they learn in their everyday job. So th they not only work on a particular pr uh, project, but they see the value of what they're doing as a process and they start try to, and they become the evangelists. So my idea, one idea is that we're also going to uh, open design thinking seminars up for the whole company. There's enough buzz within the company about people saying, what mm -hmm. is this design thinking anyway? Um, so we've we've done um, several projects. Um, just so, so you understand that what we're doing is not only in, external design thinking. We're doing internal design thinking. We've redesigned our uh, communication, uh, our, our uh, monthly bulletin, basically, based upon a design thinking, in a sense that we've gone out and asked people, what do you think about what we're doing? What's good? What's bad? The exact same thing that right. Keith guys did with algebra. We also are doing a educational program for employees mm -hmm. because Education and communication is the key for everything. So what we've done is we've gone out to the employees with another team saying, okay, we're going to teach you about what our business is about. What would you be interested in? What do you right. not know? And we have a team that's actually pro, pro, uh, produced uh, what I call the first module, and they're going to go out after we get approval tomorrow, hopefully. We're going <laughs> to go out to the whole company, each base yard, and we're going to go with module hmm. 101, that's going to educate people at a very high level about what our business is, what our challenges is, and then they're going to at the same time be developing module two that's more financially driven. Um, but the idea is to provide everybody this context. But the whole idea is that they created a module. They actually went out and tested the module on a group. So that's the prototype. Mm -hmm. And they got feedback from the group saying, well, we didn't understand this, or maybe you should add this, or maybe mm -hmm. you should change the graphics. So they've, they continue to refine it, but so this... Design thinking can be used in a very different, uh, in very different situations. Yeah, and, and it would probably be different for, for different companies. I, I like right. what you said about maybe the company newsletter and comparing it to algebra. I don't know how many people look forward to their company newsletter. Um, so you did answer part of that second question, though, like how does this get, you know, get sustained? And you said you have a session every Thursday. Well, I have a group of people that help 
create and they're the, they're the real thinkers. They come up with all the ideas about what we're going to do. But my idea is that if we get enough of these groups started within the company addressing various issues, that you're going to start a bottom-up swell, right? So you're going to start a bottom-up type of uh, change as opposed to a top-down because I don't think you can create culture change starts bottom-up, doesn't start top-down. Mm -hmm. You can provide values, but you cannot force people to change their way to behave. You know, we're talking to uh, John Komeichi. He's a senior vice president over at Hawaiian Telecom and Keith Ayashi, principal over at Waipahu High School. And we're talking about innovation and the process of design thinking and how this might uh, in, sort of infuse uh, a culture of innovation within the organization. And if you have a comment or question, feel free to give us a call. Number here is 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands at one 941 3689 I want to welcome Lisa from Macaulay to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. I was just wondering if there are any events coming up um, in the near future to learn anything more about design thinking. Well, that is a very good question, and Keith is frantically well, looking at his... I, iPhone. I can let you know that the uh, High Tech Development Council, or HTDC in any case, is doing an uh, introduction to design thinking, and that'll be on Thursday, next Thursday, the 23rd in Manoa at the Manoa Innovation Lab. Uh, it's a lunchtime event, so 11 to 1. Um, so, you know, that's probably right up your alley. It just came into my inbox uh, today and completely unrelated to the scheduling for today's program. But uh, if you want more information at on that, uh, you can email info, I-N-F-O, at InnovateHawaii.org. Uh, and again, that's a program of the uh, HTDC, so you can also Google them and call them up if you need more information. How about that? Wow, that's pretty good. And <laughs> then, you know, there is the uh, Design Thinking Boot Camp that's coming up also. Uh, and I think uh, I'm not well equipped to give you the exact date and time of that. but uh, You can Google that as well. You can Google that. <laughs> DesignThinkingHawaii.com is where I'm at. and I think it, uh, those dates are uh, June 18th, 19th, and 20th. And there's a, there's an actual site to register for that, right? I believe so, yeah. I think if you go ahead and uh, Google Design yeah. Thinking, it'll, it'll show up. Yeah, and that Google. sounds like a much more intense program if it's three days. Yeah, but if you just go Google Design Thinking, you'll get a lot of good articles. You know, Design Thinking... Um, if you go to the, the major proponents, is a company called IDEO and the Stanford School of Design. Um, so if you Google um, and go to those particular sites, you'll get a lot of information, and they have videos and other stuff that can teach you about design thinking. Yeah, so Lisa, thanks for the uh, call and the question, and, and we'll be sure to post uh, information up on the show notes, uh, which should go up later on tonight. Fantastic. So that's great. Uh, you know, John, I was curious about, you know, the teams that get formed. And when you start to first put together uh, your, your sort of design thinking team, were you looking for a, a specific individual or characteristics of an employee that would help to be a part of this team? What were you looking for? We actually started, we didn't start, our, our cultural change started not necessarily with innovation, but we're just trying to figure out, okay, what's the culture that we want? So we actually created a team that we call the Navigators, and we actually had criteria that we used to select them. Uh, but as we go out into the company, and for example, I gave you the example of um, uh, creating what customers want, we actually had uh, volunteers. So people volunteered. Um, so it's, we, we created a, a core team, which right. we picked. But then after that, we uh, asked for volunteers, and we're getting a high rate of volunteers. I like navigators. Yeah, well, we've got one uh, caller waiting patiently. Elaine, we want to welcome you to Bite Marsh Cafe from Kaimuki. Welcome to the show. 
Hi, thanks. Hi. Uh, I just wanted to address the uh, principal from Ipahu and say this is a probably really exciting thing that's going to happen or is happening in public schools, especially with, with regard to the algebra uh, teaching and doing, especially for boys, because they find it so hard to sit still, they need to actually do. <laughs> and this will really, I, I'm sure this really increases their confidence as well as their learning base. Uh, and I'm really happy to hear that there's finally some innovation. And I thank you very much for bringing it to them, and I hope other schools do adopt that soon. Well, thanks, Absolutely. Elaine. Yeah, thanks for that comment. I'm, I'm sure, Keith, do you appreciate the, those comments? I sure do. Thank you very much. Um, and I, I know that there's a lot of great things going on in, in different public schools uh, in, in, in innovating uh, our curriculum. Um, Waipahu is just one of the different ways that we're doing things, but there's, there's uh, I know, a whole lot of high schools and intermediate elementary schools that are doing great things. Mm-hmm. Now, Keith mentioned, uh, uh, John mentioned having some things coming up. I was kind of curious, what's next on your game plan? Uh, any projects uh, for your school in particular coming up? Uh, well, we're um, we're looking at working with, continuing to work with Waikele Elementary. And what I think what's really exciting is uh, our CEO in our complex area, our complex area superintendent, um, has rallied our schools in both Pro City and Waipahu and so all of us have committed to uh, design thinking. And so the principals and teachers, uh, you know, we've had a s- several sessions, a couple of sessions already. And um, we'll be attending the boot camp. Mm-hmm. And so when you have that critical mass of schools, uh, 18 public schools focused on design thinking and providing those different innovative opportunities for students from kindergarten through 12th grade, only great, great things can happen. Mm-hmm. So we're really excited about that. And, John, uh, any any final comments on the uh Innovation and design thinking at Hawaiian No, I, I just want to re- reiterate what I said earlier that um, this process is really energizing to people. And they, they, they like the energy. They like the fact that they're kind of brainstorming, having fun, yet at the same time developing solutions. So I, I think if you do it, and you know, luckily we got uh, guidance from Ian and his people, if you do it right, the thing sort of sells itself because yeah. people feel good about what they're doing. And that's at the end of the day, that's what innovation is about. They got to feel good about what they're doing and that they're making a difference. Absolutely. I mean, it's very empowering. John Komeiji is the senior vice president over at Hawaiian Telecom, and Keith Hayashi is the principal at Waipahu High School. I want to thank you both for joining us today. Thank, thank you very much. Thanks. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll get an update on the maker movement in Hawaii. And if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at feedback at bitemarkscafe.org. Or you can find us on Twitter. I'm at BiteMarks. And I'm at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. We leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band that I like just because of their name. It's called Panda Riot and a song called Black Pyramids. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.